following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Hello, I'm Denise again. Um, today I will be reading the third scripture, which comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which in turn you received, in which you also stand through which you are also being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim for you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I have handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn have received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of these apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I have persecuted the church of Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. When I was a little kid, maybe about six years old, uh, I was in Sunday school on a Sunday morning, just where I was every Sunday morning when I was that age. Um, and that morning, the teacher asked the class, if any of us wanted to accept Jesus into our hearts. And uh, those of us who did, she asked us to, to raise our hands while she led us in a prayer that we all were supposed to say in our hearts after she said the words. And, and some of you might know this type of prayer. It was something along the lines of, Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me and wash me clean. I accept you into my heart so that when I die, I can be with you in heaven. So I prayed that prayer. There had been a lot of um, fire and brimstone, <laughs> thankfully, in that class full of six-year-olds. <laughs> but I was the kind of compliant child that, that really didn't need the heat turned up very high <laughs> uh, in order to want to try to atone for my wrongs. And so that day, I became a Christian. And the teacher told us that the angels were having a party in heaven. And you know, I expected they probably were. Maybe you also had have some kind of experience like that in your life? I see some hands. Yes, yes, good. When I was uh, when I was twelve years old, I went to a Christian summer camp for kids. And every night. After a day of water balloon fights and relay races and terrible food and people using cologne that probably they weren't open to use. <laughs> All the other things that happened at, at teen summer camps. Uh, there was, every night there was a worship service in the chapel. Um, and included a sermon by the guest preacher. By the way, quick aside, at that age, I just thought, like, they got a guest preacher. This guy must be, and it's always a guy. This guy must be like amazing. I wonder how like how many camps he does every summer. And I have since been asked to speak at some summer camps, and this is how it works. 
dear pastor, <laughs> um, our speaker canceled. Can you come to the At least it's hard for me. <laughs> At any rate, every night there was a sermon from the guest preacher, and this time there was a little bit of fire and brimstone. And at the end of every sermon, he would invite everybody who wanted to come forward to the altar, um, which was just like a, you know, a kneeling rail, basically, and, and to pray a prayer asking for the forgiveness of sins. Anybody else have an experience like this at a Christian summer camp with kids or teens? Yes, the hands are not going up quite as high this time, but there are at least some identification with this experience in the room. Um, I will tell you, though, this time... I did not participate as I had when I was six years old. I sat in that hard room pew for the next 45 minutes while everyone else um, got saved up at the altar. I wasn't, um, wasn't the type to really want to do something like that overly publicly. I'll tell you one thing. That night, as I lay in my bunk in a little A-frame tent that they had for campers, I prayed that prayer. I prayed it fervently. And this began a pattern for me of praying uh, for salvation, praying what we call the sinner's prayer on a fairly regular basis over and over and over again. Anybody want to put their hands up for that one? Yeah. When I look back on all this, I can't help but wonder if God saved me back when I was six years old in Mrs. McDonald's Sunday school class and the angels rejoiced and my sins were washed away, why did I need to keep getting saved over and over and over again? Was there something wrong with me? I mean, I knew there was something wrong with me. That was kind of the whole point. Um, <laughs> As a matter of fact, I don't remember what passages from the Bible any of these preachers that I ever remember a lot of them in my youth and adolescence would have used in these sermons before inviting people up to the altar to receive Christ, possibly again. Um, but they could have used some of the passages that the lectionary gives us today. Some of the passages that are being read in this very church service today could have been used in those, those camp sermons. Some cases, even in a kind of fire and brimstone way. I mean, we haven't heard Isaiah 6 yet. That'll be our benediction text today. But I'll give you a little bit of it right now. This is Isaiah's vision of the heavenly throne room, right? This is actually a quite famous passage of scripture. If you've spent time in church, you probably have heard this one. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he goes on to say a little bit later, Then one of the seraphs, one of the angels, flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. That'll preach at a you know, camp meeting one. <laughs> then there's the passage from the gospel uh, that we heard just before the baptism today. You remember this one where the... the the fishermen who would become Jesus' disciples were out fishing, they hadn't caught anything. And uh, Jesus comes and tells them, hey, try throwing it down the other side of the boat. And I love Bridget's, uh, did you say attitude mind when she read it? Totally, totally. I think they had the attitude. They're like, um, do you know how nets and boats work? 
start following Jesus. But uh, there's that part when, when Peter uh, says, uh, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or the one that was just read before the sermon, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is talking about how the risen Christ appeared to different groups of people, including the apostles. And then he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. That will also preach at a camp meeting. But you see this common ground that all these texts have, this common trope, this theme that comes around of, I'm a man of unclean lips, go away from me, because I, uh, I, I can't be near you, I'm a sinful man. And then Paul saying, I'm the least of all the apostles, I didn't deserve anything because of what I had done. So yes, I knew there was something wrong with me. But that's what salvation was supposed to fix. It's the same thing that all of us have in common, the fact that our own sin prevents us from experiencing true shalom, that, that deep relational peace with God, with each other, and with our world. And if salvation wasn't fixing that, if it wasn't taking, it left me with a different question than, is there something wrong with me? It actually left me with a much more disturbing question, which is, is there something wrong with God? Because what I couldn't figure out was why God didn't seem to be able to save me in a way that would actually stick. Then one day, I was reading the Bible, and I came to today's epistle reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And I read these words. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you. And that phrase hit me like a ton of bricks. I would remind you of the good news through which you are being saved. And what hit me like a ton of bricks was the verb tense. Now, I need to pause here and just admit, I am both a theology nerd and a grammar nerd. So it's quite possible that in this room of dozens and dozens of people, I am the only one who's lit up by this. <laughs> and if that's the case, I will just apologize to you and tell you I'll be done soon. You'll be having your lunch. You can figure out all about it. We have two great guest speakers for the next two weeks. <laughs> you get the taste right out of your mouth, and, uh, and the boredom will just melt away. You'll be happy again by the next time I'm here, I hope. <laughs> But it doesn't say the good news through which you were saved. Now that's not to say it doesn't say that kind of thing, the Bible doesn't say that kind of thing in other places. But that day, I was reading this text. And today, we're reading this text. And this one says, through which you are being saved. And it's almost as if, uh, when I read that passage that day, that God was saying to me, yeah, it didn't stick. So what? It never does. Have you met any of my other children? <laughs> but that doesn't mean I didn't save you. It just means that we have some work to do together. 
began to realize that day, and which frankly has shaped so much of my understanding of the world and my faith and of God since, is that salvation is not intended to be a transaction whereby we, um, through some words, in the case of like the evangelical world that I grew up in, or um, frankly in the case of baptism in the, in the more um, sacramental and liturgical and high church worlds, we all have a version of this kind of thing where we think, I did this thing, and that's what saves me. And so, um, either that's the end of it, I don't have to worry about it anymore, or I, anytime there's a problem, I have to examine and re-examine myself and say, did it really work? Because if we had this exchange of goods and services between me and God, whereby I prayed a prayer and God forgave my sins and washed me clean, or whereby Jesus paid some penalty that was supposed to be given to me. At that point, my biggest sin is I think I stole a grape from the uh, grocery store produce aisle. Not sure that warrants crucifixion, but this is the, this is the uh, message that we get, which is that Jesus was punished in our place, right? What I began to realize, my friends, that I want you to know is that it's not a transaction. It's a, it's a transformation. It's the start of a transformation. Once I began to have that realization, I started to reread a lot of the other Bible passages that at that point I probably had already memorized many of them. And I went back through and I, I re-examined them through this lens, through the idea of being saved, through the idea of salvation as an ongoing, unfolding experience. And I read verses like Romans 12, 2, that say, says, do not be conformed to this world. And boy, did I get that message a lot. <laughs> but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Even the language there, we could really unpack the very dirty grammar of that one, but even the language there is this picture of something that's happening over time. We are being transformed by the ongoing renewing of our minds. Verses like Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. This language doesn't say anything to me anymore about uh, having something completely done and figured out and buttoned up in its entirety at some altar when I was 6 or 12 or 14 or 15 or 18 years old. I didn't tell you about the stories from college. I went to a small liberal arts Christian college. I won't say the one, but it rhymes with Auburn's Estate. <laughs> <laughs> a great place. Lots of good things happened there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> some of you went to a similar one that rhymes with um, Bowden. <laughs> There's a rivalry there. It's not important. But... <laughs> Yes, but soccer doesn't matter. So. <laughs> we always won basketball games. It's an American sport. <laughs> I have no idea where I was in the <laughs> The point is, I could go on and on with Bible verses that I reread through this lens of salvation as an ongoing unfolding process. But suffice it to say, it was a whole new way of looking at the world. It's a whole new way of understanding who I was in Christ and of my job as a member of the body of Christ. 
And so on this day, when we've witnessed a baptism, that beautiful sacrament of initiation, of welcome, of beginning, I am filled with joy to share this idea with you. That this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of the story, but it's, it's a heartachingly beautiful story that God wants to tell through your life, each one of you. And the story isn't whatever you did was awful, and now everything you do from here out is going to be perfect. That's the false promise. The story is one of transformation, not one of a religious transaction. And so find that story that God wants to tell through your life and live your one wild, beautiful life. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out one last little thing to you today. Earlier, I read snippets of three of our lectionary readings. I'm taking over. The, the passages that I read to you that had they all describe a person realizing that they were in desperate need of God's grace and then the story of them receiving that grace from God. There's something else, though, that, that each of those passages has in common. And so I'll, I'll, let me just read a few additional words from each one of those passages. Um, you remember Isaiah, the man of unclean lips, and the angel put the burning hot coal and, and blotted out his sin? After that, he says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. That's the conclusion of the Isaiah passage. Um, the, the gospel passage with the, with the fisherman, with the sarcastic fisherman. <laughs> Remember that story? And how Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Um, that one ends up with them quitting their fishing job and following Jesus around. And Jesus saying to them, from now on, you're going to be fishing for people. And then the story of Paul, who, who confesses to the Corinthians that he was a persecutor of the church and he had no standing by which God should have blessed him, and yet God gave um, Paul grace and grace made all who he was. Paul says, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul can't help us, but then a little bit of bragging to everyone. <laughs> but then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. You see what else each of these three stories has in common? It's not only the idea of a person's sinfulness keeping them from fully experiencing God's shalom. It's not only the idea of God freely offering to forgive their sin and blessing them and healing them. But it's also the idea that the natural response to that experience of grace and blessing and healing is to proclaim it to other people. Here's why it matters the way we talk about how Jesus saves us. Because I don't know about you, but I have never in my whole life of being a faithful 
devout Christian. I have never in that whole time felt inspired to share somebody with somebody the good news that starts out with punishment and wrath and fire and brimstone. And so, consequently, I figured I just don't have the gift of evangelism. <laughs> Probably someone else should do that. When I began to see that salvation was not a transaction, but the beginning of a transformation, something that I was called to participate fully in for the rest of my life, through ups and downs, and that it was about the, the ongoing receiving of God's blessings into every area of my life so that my mind could be renewed and transformed. When I started to see it that way, then I thought, ah, well, that is good news. That is something that I would like to proclaim. So maybe you're like me and you think, ooh, evangelism, yuck. <laughs> I don't really want to shout at people. I don't really want to hold a placard. I don't want to have a megaphone. I don't want to draw the bridge illustration with the cliffs and the fire. I don't want to do the, the Romans road. I don't want to hand people a tract. Whatever it is, whatever version of that you have in your head, I'm giving you permission right now to throw that on fire. And to boldly proclaim the goodness of your actual salvation, which is happening now, was happening then, will be happening tomorrow, was happening the day you were born, which is why we baptize babies, because the grace of God is present in their lives before they ever uh, profess faith, and long after. That is something that I think we should all be willing to proclaim in our own way. And I hope you are as uh, overjoyed by that picture of salvation as I am. <laughs> Jonah's already preaching the gospel. <laughs> now, I, I, I freely admit that this proclamation idea, this book proclaiming the gospel stuff, can be a little bit intimidating and terrifying. And so I want to give you an easy way to begin this process. And it's something that we do really, really often at our service. We proclaim the gospel uh, to and with each other by saying the creeds. And uh, the Apostles' Creed is a creed that um, was formulated out of the church's baptism ritual. It started out with a series of questions and answers that the one being baptized would give, and it emerged into this uh, 12 phrase creed known as the Apostles' Creed. And so before we come to communion, I want us to say the Apostles' Creed together as a first act, maybe the first time ever you thought about this as a proclamation of the gospel, but you're proclaiming it to yourself and to everybody else in the room, and that might just give you a little bit of fire, a good kind, to take out of this place and proclaim this good news to somebody else in your own way, in the way that God has gifted you. So, uh, will you put the feet on the screen so that we can say it together, please? Let's proclaim the gospel. I believe in God, the Father Almighty,
the story before we have because we are using this creed as the basis of our confirmation class with some of our, our students. And uh, we had done the first two phrases of it at the end of the session last week. And so we had those two on paper in front of us, but the rest of the creed was in the back of the book, right? It hadn't been opened up yet. And I said, okay, let's say these first two phrases of the creed together. And we said it, read them off the page, and then every single student around the table finished the entire creed from memory, <laughs> which was pretty awesome. Um, and it goes to maybe the, the benefit of, of saying things like this um, over and over again. Anyway, I want to invite you now to come and receive the sacraments of grace on offer here at the communion table. This is something that's available to each person in the room who would like to receive uh, the sacrament with us. You don't have to be a member of our church. You simply have to be following Jesus and trusting in him, uh, believing in his real presence here in the bread and the wine. We have um, regular bread, gluten-free bread, wine, juice, the little self-contained ones if you need one that, um, that you know uh, is completely uh, sterilized. And you can choose whatever option you want, but we all take it from the same table. We all do this as one body. And here is the baptismal water. And if you would like to remember your baptism as you come up and just dip your fingers in the water, you are invited to do that. Lastly, you'll be a member of our prayer team at the back of the room. I see that Seth is there already. If you'd like to receive personal prayer this morning, we'd like to pray with you. As the band continues to lead us uh, in singing, we'll take communion together. Um, you can get your kids up there in the classroom right now. We'll time to so go and get them. Um, may this be for you, for the real presence of Jesus, the Savior, the body and blood that saves us. May it be food for your hungry souls, and we take it every week because we need it. We get hungry every week. Our table's open. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.